following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Our sermon passage this morning is Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think? proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. How we doing? Amen. So we've been spending a uh, good bit of time uh, walking through this series that we're calling Love Your Neighbor. And one one of the elements of love that is really, really tough to exemplify in our lives is mercy. It's mercy. One of the elements of love that becomes really, really convenient in our day and time to leave on the side um, in a day and time where it's, a, where, where, where it's about gimme, 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 more, 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 mine, 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 and every single person around you seems to be pushing and driving to make a name for themselves and to make profit for themselves and to, make, and to gain more possessions for themselves and to gain more trinkets for themselves. One of the things that is really, really hard for an American church to work with and work through is the ideal of mercy. The ideal of mercy, the ideal of what, what, what does love look like when it is not about you? You tracking with that? What does love look like when it's not about you? Because that's ultimately what mercy is. Mercy is the ability to extend oneself in a way that you're not simply thinking of self, but you're, you're extending oneself in order to help another who doesn't have what you have or help another who's not in the position that you're in, the, uh, that you're in or help another who doesn't have the same power that you have, who doesn't have the same privilege, who doesn't have the same advantages that you have. And sometimes mercy requires that you sacrifice your power. Sometimes mercy requires that you sacrifice your privileges. Sometimes mercy requires that you sacrifice your advantages for the sake of another. 
Jesus is talking to a lawyer in this passage, and the lawyer asks him a simple question. The thing about this lawyer is that the question is that this conversation for this lawyer really isn't even about the question that he asks. He asks a question, but it's not about the question. The Bible immediately tells us the lawyer's motive when it says that the lawyer has come to put Jesus to the test. And he puts him to the test. He says, what, do you, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This question is never intended to bring salvation. This question is never intended, like so many other questions brought to Jesus, this question is brought to him to get him to stumble, to trip him up, to say, aha, you're not who we thought you were. And, and it turns, what, what ends up happening in the midst of this question being asked is that there is a lesson that we all need to hear. And so it's good that this guy comes along, this lawyer comes along and tests Jesus because we all need to hear Jesus' response to the question. The lawyer first starts with, again, just a simple question, not really simple, but simplistic in terms of its form, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking for the wrong reasons, but he's actually asking the right question, right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What's interesting is how quickly Jesus turns the tables on the question, he, turn, he turns the tables on the lawyer, and now it goes from Jesus being on trial and Jesus being tested to the lawyer now being on trial and being tested. And so Jesus immediately turns the tables from a question being asked of him to him asking the lawyer a question. And Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus literally answers this man's question with a question, and now the lawyer is on trial instead of Jesus being on trial, right? The lawyer responds with the very heart of, of this series, what everything that we've been talking about for the last five weeks, the lawyer, the lawyer keys in on in, in this text. He says, we've been studying, uh, or, or, rather, or, or rather, he keys in on this text when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Hearkening back to the Old Testament, love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy. And this is the sum total. We've talked about this. This is the sum total of all of the law. If you want to, cap, if you want to reduce the law down to two commandments, these are the two. Love God, love neighbor. This is where all of the law leads to. This is where all your acts of obedience should be built on, Okay. Everything that you do for, everything that you do in the name of God, every, every good deed, every good act, every, every act of service, every act of mercy, every act of forgiveness, it should be built on these two tenets. Love God, love neighbor. That's what drives them. If anything is driving you to do what you do outside of those two tenets, love God, love neighbor, then chances are they are wrongly motivated, your actions, that is. If anything is driving you to act outside of those two tenets, love God, love neighbor, then chances are they are wrongly motivated, even if they're good things to do. This is how we show Christ in the world. Love God, love neighbor. This is how the world sees Jesus in you and in me. Love God, love neighbor. 
Jesus takes this lawyer who is seeking to test him, and he not only, not only does he turn the trial back onto him, but he, in fact, has the lawyer answer his own question, a question that the lawyer actually answers correctly. But in answering his own question, the lawyer is, uh, he, he, he understands something that we, we all would do well to understand, and what he understands creates a dilemma for him. It creates a dilemma with him. But he goes about solving the dilemma all, all, in all the wrong ways. So here's the dilemma. As the lawyer is answering his question, how does one inherit eternal life? By loving God with everything you have and by loving neighbor as yourself. He answers that question and immediately it seems to dawn on the lawyer, I'm probably not doing that completely. And so this is what he does. By the way, he's right. He's not doing it completely. So this is what he does. I know I'm not doing this perfectly because, after all, we all perfectly, imperfectly love God and we all imperfectly love neighbor. The Bible tells us, as a matter of fact, that we are hopelessly imperfect with no real hopes of ever correcting that, at least in this life. You and I are hopelessly imperfect in our affection towards God and in our love and affection towards neighbor. This lawyer sees it. We all should see it. In fact, the Bible sees it and tells us, Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all do this work, these two tenets, or fulfilling these two tenets, imperfectly. This lawyer knows that. You know that. Jesus knows that. But the next part is where the lawyer would do well in Romans chapter 3 to obey and to heed. So in Romans chapter 3, it says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, verse 23. But in verse 24, it says, and are justified by his grace. So we all sin, fall short of the glory of God. None of you in this room love God perfectly. None of you in this room love neighbor perfectly. But how are you justified? You are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a substitute, a substitute to take, to take the place of your sin, all right, a satisfactory offering in your place. He put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So by faith, you receive the substitution, the propitiation, the atonement for your sin that Jesus gave on the cross, and in so doing, you are justified by that grace that was extended to you as a gift. That's how you're justified. So in other words, in your shortcomings in loving God, in your shortcomings of loving neighbor, you are justified by grace through Christ. Does that make sense, everybody? So, he continues, Paul continues, and he says this in Romans chapter 3, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, God was righteous. He had to punish sin at some point. He punishes it through his son. Before that, he just overlooked it. But eventually there had to be a reckoning, and the reckoning came through God's only son. 
And verse 26 says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus is the one who is satisfying God's holy wrath. And Jesus is the one that allows you to imperfectly stumble through this loving God and loving neighbor. Jesus is the one that allows you to do that. So this guy knows that. He knows that I'm not perfect. But the lawyer, instead of going the route that he needs to take, he chooses a different path. And this is what happens in verse 29 of Luke 10. He says, or the scripture says, Luke says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? In the face of an impossible command, right? Love God with everything you have. Love neighbor as yourself. Instead of him saying, Lord, I need help with that. I can't do that. Who's going to do that for me? Right? He says, I can't do that. Let's try to see if we can shuffle this board around and figure out, figure out another way to hear this command that he just gave me. And so he says, who is my neighbor? Who, who, who amongst these people here that I must, that I must love like myself? Because I can't love Everybody like myself. So who, who amongst these folks do you want me to love like myself? Is it, is it my family? Do you want me to love my family like myself? Is it, is it my city? Do you want me to love my city, fellow city, uh, city uh, citizens like myself? Is it my fellow statesmen in this country, perhaps? Do you want me to love my fellow countrymen like myself? Is it my ethnicity? Do you want me to love Black people, or do you want me to love white people like myself? Who, who amongst this group do you want me to love like myself? See, when you're seeking to develop a, a righteousness with, with, with God that's based on your own merits, you have to lower the bar, right? You have to lower the bar. And so as you read these scriptures, you don't say, you don't cry out to God and say, Lord, help me, right? Help me. I, I, I can't do this. So give me grace to stand, give me grace to fight, and when I fall, give me grace, right? Let, let, the, let, the, let the sacrifice of your son cover me in my failures. No, instead, when you're trying to build a righteousness with God based on your own merit, you lower the bar. You say, well, well, well he's talking about a certain kind of neighbor. You start trying to figure out, well, who do you want me to love well is what this lawyer is asking. The self-righteous can only change the command in order to follow it. Some change it to be my only ethnic kin, right? You see, you see people on the streets screaming either black power or white power. Some change it, some change it to, to just be the people on this side of the birth canal, right? The life side or the, or the, or the out, out, outer side, the external side. And we say, well, we're going to love all of these children that are born well. Some people even, even change it to just be the unborn. We're going to love these children really, really, really well. Some people change it to be countrymen, Americans and, or Koreans. We're going we're gonna to love each other well in Korea. We're going to love each other well in America. But is that what Jesus is saying? Well, to help this young man, to help this lawyer with this story, or to help this young man, rather, with this command, Jesus tells him a story. 
a story of love, a story of courage, a story of mercy, a story of justice, a story of what it looks like to be a man or a woman justified through faith in Christ and living in light of that mercy in which you have received from Christ. This is what that story is about. He begins in Luke 10, verse, verse 30, and he says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The story begins with a road. A road. A road between Jerusalem and Jericho. A, a very extreme, extremely dangerous road. An 18-mile long road with about a half a mile of descent, so a downhill road, barren road, desolate road, absent of much water, if any, absent of vegetation. It was a prime road for travel back and forth between Jerusalem and Jericho for those who needed to get back and forth to Jerusalem, but it was a rocky road. It was a mountainous road. It was a, it was a it was a mountainous territory with plenty of spaces for no-gooders to hide out. Matter of fact, on um, this video here, as you see, this is that road. This is the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. Not a very comfortable road. 18 miles long is what Jesus is describing, this man on his journey back to Jericho. And as this man, this was by, produced, by the way, by the University of Notre Dame, and they also say, uh, one of the scholars at Notre Dame says about this road, the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was a major thoroughfare for, for trading caravans, military personnel, and the pilgrims who visited Jerusalem multiple times each year. Given the isolated terrain, people on this road were easy targets for bandits who would, have, who would have found ample hiding places and escape routes into the desert where no one would pursue them. When Jesus said that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, his listeners surely would have recognized the dangers that this journey posed. Thank you, sis. This was a rough road, right? So much so that the road itself was known as the way of blood. Who drives down the way of blood, right? Nobody, nobody goes down that road, right? But this gentleman is on that road. Some roads we travel in life are a lot like that, a lot tougher than others. They cause us to wind up in all sorts of trouble. Some of us have taken roads in life that have left us in fates similar to the poor man in this story, lying on the ground with no help in sight, beaten, broken, battered, bruised. It is on this road that that man, that, that, that vulnerable man, in his efforts to return to Jericho, is captured, beaten, robbed, left for dead. And that may very well be for this particular audience that Jesus is speaking to, the least controversial and surprising part of the story. This vulnerable man. We had the opportunity to spend time in a prayer vigil last night. This is Sanctity of Life Week. Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we'll have more to, more to share with you about that at the conclusion of service, but 
We had an opportunity to spend time praying for the unborn lives, those in the womb um, that did not get a chance to see this side of the world. And, and oftentimes there is this kind of collision when you look at the political spectrum. There's a collision on the, on the politics side for those who are passionate before the birth of a child in politics and those who seem to be more passionate after the birth of a child in politics. Politics seems to divide these matters as if they should be divided. But we know that the child before the, or we know that the life before the birth of a child matters to God. We know that. No matter how vulnerable it is. The child has been given a soul from God. We know that by reading Luke chapter 1 when, when Mary, is with, uh, Mary is with her sister Elizabeth. The Bible says that when, when Mary spoke, that the child in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy. That's not just a bag of cells. Are you tracking with that? That's a child with a soul that responds to the Savior of the world in his presence. We know that not only has that child been given a soul from God, but we know that that child has been given a plan from God. In Jeremiah 1, he tells Jeremiah, the prophet, that I knew you before you were ever born. And I ordained you before you were ever born to be a prophet for the nation. For you were formed, for you formed my inward parts, says Psalm 139. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Do you hear the active role that God is taking in forming this vulnerable child in the womb of a mother? I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In your book, every single day was written when there was none. Your eyes saw me. Your eyes saw me. God's eyes saw that child. And so that child is vulnerable, and so that child should be contended for. That, that child should be fought for. That child should be, should be defended. But the Bible says in that same text, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So every day was formed by God. Every day was set in place for that child by God. So what does that mean? That means that the day before that child was born and the day after that child was born mattered to God. Every single one of those days matter to God. And so that child should be contended for before he reaches this earth, and that child should be contended for the moment after he reaches this earth, and the year after, and two years after, and three years after, and four years after, after being in a broken home and being more, more, more tough to deal with. Are you tracking with this? Not being as beautiful or not being as cute and as cuddly 
but being rebellious, angry, because they haven't seen father. Or maybe they have seen father and he hasn't been very nice because they haven't seen mom much. Or maybe they've seen mom and she isn't very nice. And that child should be contended for when he's five, contended for when he's six, contended for when he's seven, when he's eight, when he's nine. I'll never forget having an experience where we, there were a group of people contending as to whether or not we should allow a certain group of kids into a space in order to give them candy. And they said, well, let's, let's, let's save the good candy for our kids. And then when the other kids come, we can take out the cheap candy. There was not a doubt in my mind that 99% of the people in that room were pro-life. So just the unborn babies deserve the good things? The unborn deserve our, our love, our affection? Yes, they do, without a shadow of a doubt. But that child is still beautiful in the eyes of God, even after. They've been in a rough situation with a rough household, with a rough upbringing. That child is still precious to God. When we politicize people, our politics will always end up separating us and putting us on dividing sides that should not be contended for. We should say yes when they say, is the unborn precious? We should say yes, they are. And when they say the born is precious and should be contended for and we should find ways to support and love them, we should say yes. We should not say, oh, wait a second, that might be a Democratic issue. Oh, wait a second, that might be a Republican issue. It has no bearing on how the church feels about those children. Why? Because our Bible tells us that God saw every single one of those days and thought that those days were precious. No matter whether those days were part of the first nine months or whether they were part of the second nine months. We're contending for the vulnerable. We are contending for the broken and the battered and the beaten on the road to Jericho. And they come in all shapes and all sizes and all colors and all ages. We are contending for the people on the road who have nowhere else to go and who have nowhere else to turn to, which leads us to the religious in this text. Verse 31 says, now by chance a priest was going down that road, the same dangerous road. And when he saw him, this vulnerable, beaten man, he passed by on the other side. <laughs> do you understand that not only did he pass him, do you understand that he passed him in such a way to ensure that he would not even have to have contact with him? How many people do we not simply pass that are broken, but how many people do we intentionally find ways to avoid because we don't want to get caught in the messiness of their vulnerability? How many people are, who's, how many people's vulnerability is simply too inconvenient for our lives? 
This is a priest. Somebody's pastor, shepherd, church-going guy. Likewise, a Levite laboring in the church. When he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Didn't want to be inconvenienced. Who knows what's happening here? Possibly urgency. I have things to do. Possibly fear. If I get too close, maybe they'll jump and they'll rob and take me. We don't know the motivations at work for why they pass by, but we know that they take every effort that they possibly can to ensure that they have no contact with this hurting and broken man. The Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, when you look at history in the 50s and, and 60s and 40s, it actually tells a tale of two churches. It tells a tale of a church that was, you know, operating in such a way that it was trying not to upset the apple cart, and it tells a tale of a church who had no choice but to upset it because they were the ones in affliction. And so it tells when you walk through the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, what you see is the presence of the black church and they're, and they're educating their children, right? They're opening up schools and, and, they're, and they're opening up uh, food programs and they're, and, they're, and, they're, um, and they're having their civil rights meetings actually happening in the church, right? My mom can share some stories about, about that that will blow your mind about how they were in the church and that there were people at the doors of the church that were threatening to come in or threatening to burn the church down because people were gathering and meeting and trying to figure out what's the best way to contend for their freedom. And so the black church was rallying all throughout this effort. And then there was in the South, not talking about necessarily the North, don't know about the North, there's, some, there's, there's a little bit of hidden mist there. But in the South in particular, there was a real deliberate and strategic plan to turn the Bible on its head in such a way to make it seem that those matters did not matter to God. And that there was birth out of that, and there has been a reframing in the, in the years since. As a matter of fact, the Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church of America, gathered at, at, at I believe, their 43rd assembly just a couple of years ago to say, listen, the spirituality of the church doctrine that was formulated in the 19th century was a little bit off, all right? And we need to readjust how we see that and readjust how we discuss that. But one of the things in the 19th century that they, they, they did is that they used the spirituality of the church to say, right, the church has no matters in these things. It should be concerned about salvation of souls. In fact, Southern Baptists in the World War II efforts said to themselves, or, or, or in the, the, early, the, the, the late 20s, late 30s, said to themselves during the Nazi Germany era, let's not get involved in that. You literally had people saying, pastors saying, what they do over there, with those Jewish people, we, we, we don't have a voice in that. That's what they do. And besides, we don't want to upset the apple cart in Germany because they're letting us come over there and evangelize and share the gospel. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? That they're letting us go over, they're letting us evangelize, so we can't be caught up in what they're doing with those Jewish people and the millions of people that they're slaughtering in concentration camps. We can't speak to that.
the more comfortable you are in the culture, the less compelled you feel to translate the gospel into loving, courageous acts of mercy. See, it's, it's not just the church of the 30s, 40s. It's not just the church. It's the church now. The black church, the white church, we are contending with this now. The more comfortable we get, black, white, other, does not matter. The more comfortable we get, the harder it is and the less compelled we feel to translate our gospel into real, loving, courageous acts of mercy. The more we say, well, let's not get involved in that. We don't want to start doing this social gospel thing. And it's, and it's true, we don't want to start making the gospel simply about social acts. But to say that the gospel has nothing to say about it would be ludicrous. The more secure your place in society is as a Christian, the easier it is to build a conviction that not only are you not called to aid those who are hurting in their circumstances, but in fact, you are called to make sure that other Christians do not. Which is what Dr. King was contending with in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He had many religious leaders writing an editorial in the newspaper, the Birmingham newspaper, saying he is wrong for this and he should just keep peace and be quiet. Why? Because him not keeping peace, him not being quiet, was disrupting the comfort and the security that they cherished. Does that make sense? The more secure your place is in society, and I'm talking to us right now, the more secure our place is in society, the easier it will be to build a conviction to say, that's somebody else's job, that's not mine. It's one of the reasons why we cherish, if you, if you want to be frank and honest, it's one of the reasons that some people cherish the politics so. Because the politics for a lot of people, I'm not talking about all, but the politics for a lot of people allow them to say, let them do it. In the meantime, I'm going to go to my job, and I'm going to go home, and I'm going to tend to my family, and I'm just going to do me. And I'll just check the box when it comes ballot time, and that will be my civil duty and my social justice for all. Politics frees us of the responsibility. But folks, let me tell you something. Christ was not a politician. And his call was not to the Congress. His call was to the church. Now, should we act? Should we vote? Should we contend? You better believe it. But should we leave it there? Absolutely not. Do not satisfy or salve your conscience by saying, because I vote a certain position, I am contending for the vulnerable. This is a local man on a local road. Do you track with that? Contending for the vulnerable. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a German theologian, preacher, as he was preparing to uh, decide as to how far he was going to go in Nazi Germany. He had made the decision after much prayer and time consulting God that he was going to put his life on the line and contend 
for what he believed was right. He could have, as a German, he could have played it safe in Nazi Germany and just let Hitler and his crew do whatever they was doing and could have just turned a blind eye and said, hey, well, at least it's not me, right? But he wrote back to his former professor, and this is what he wrote. He said, I have had the time to think and pray about my situation and that my nation and that of my nation to have God's will for me clarified. I have come to the conclusion that I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make them listen. I cannot make that choice in security. He said, I know what choice I have to make, but I know I can't make it in a comfortable space. Bonhoeffer ultimately died, was killed in Germany because he realized that he could not make his choice in security. He could not sit comfortable and watch the slaughter of millions and not say a word. He had to speak. He had to act. And it was his voice and his actions that cost him his life. Which one of the religious will we be? There's a neighbor that comes along. Luke chapter 10, verse 33, he says, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion moves us. Compassion moves us. Compassion moved Jesus. We see oftentimes in the New Testament, there's 12 times that this particular Greek form of compassion is used. And every single time we see it used by Jesus, it seems to be moving him towards action. We see him move with compassion in Matthew chapter 14. He's moved with compassion and it leads him to heal the sick. We see him in Matthew 15. He's moved with compassion and it leads him to feed the hungry. We see him in Matthew 9 that he's moved with compassion as he looks out into the cities and the villages and, and he, he, he sees the crowds. And the Bible says he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. He calls his disciples to action. He says, pray earnestly. Pray relentlessly that God would give more laborers. Why? Because he was moved with compassion looking at the harvest. Genuine compassion leads us to action. As one who has received Christ's compassion, where is your compassion taking you? Where is it driving you as a recipient of the compassion of the Son of God? Compassion drives us to selflessness. Compassion drives us out of the game of feeling like the only duty we have is to check a box and a ballot 
Compassion drives us to a local level and says, yeah, I'll continue to do that, but what else can I do to push back the face of evil in my spaces? What else can I do to be a hand to the hurting? What else can I do to be a bomb to those who are broken? Compassion moves us outside of the idea that where we say the, the, the personal responsibility that we tend to take, where we simply say, well, he shouldn't have been on the road anyway. Should have, should have paired up with somebody. Nobody goes down that dangerous road by themselves. Should have had some other people with him. If he had some other people with him, he would have never got hurt. Right? It's not my fault. Compassion moves us past that. Compassion moves us past loving that unborn child, but condemning that mother who is wrought with fear and wrought with voices in her ear that's telling her it's okay. Compassion moves us to love that child and that mom. Are you tracking with that? And to put our arms around both of them and say we're here. This is a Samaritan that's on this road. Do you understand the oddness of this story to, for Jesus? They are immediately enraged. They hate Samaritans. How is it that a Samaritan is going to be the hero of this story? point Jesus makes, neighbor, neighbor has no culture, neighbor has no color, neighbor has no ethnicity. You think, you think your neighbor is white because you're white? You think your neighbor is black because you're black? You think your neighbor is Jewish because you're Jewish? No, a Samaritan is your neighbor. That's who your neighbor is. Black man or white sister is your neighbor. White man or black sister is your neighbor. That's who your neighbor is. He literally disrupts everything that they think about what a neighbor is supposed to be. Just in one word, Samaritan. The Samaritan comes, he sees him, he has compassion. He went to him, he bound up his wounds. He went to him. So in other words, while everybody else is walking across the street, walking away from him, the Samaritan walks to him, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an end, took care of him. Next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think? He loves his neighbor as himself. He puts him what? On his own animal. You see that? Loves his neighbor as himself. Goes into his own wallet. He goes into the, the innkeeper saying, take care of him, whatever you need to do. He was moved with compassion and his compassion drove him to, self, to selflessness. So Jesus asks at the end, which of these three? Priest, Levite, Samaritan, which of these three? proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers. And the man said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. 
by the end of this story, Jesus really has changed the focus of the question from who is my neighbor to what kind of neighbor am I? We get the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? We get the answer. It's the man along the road. Doesn't matter what color he is. Doesn't matter what nationality he is. Doesn't matter his background. Doesn't matter his origin. We get the answer. It's the man along the road. Whoever you encounter, whoever you encounter in need, that's your neighbor. At the local level, when you encounter someone, when you encounter someone and they have need, you try to figure out if, what can we do, what do we need to do. So he answers that question, but that's not even the question. That's not even the question. The question now becomes, what kind of neighbor will you be? Do you see that? Who is my neighbor? The one who shows mercy. So now he's not even talking about who do I have, who, who, do, who do I have to love? Now he's talking about who loves me. And so now what he's describing is you and your actions towards other people. How will other people perceive you? What kind of neighbor will you be to others? The question is not who is my neighbor. The question is how will other, will other people see me as their neighbor? The central question to be asked, living a life of Christ, exalting mercy and gospel-centered justice is not who is my neighbor. It's what kind of neighbor will I be and how and will they see me as their neighbor? How many people do we encounter along the road of life that we can define as saying that they believe we are their real and true neighbor? Will the unborn child who has no voice find a voice of mercy in us? Will, will that child say that Brian Crawford is my neighbor? Will the caring mother of that unborn child who's facing shame and fear of a dimension that I have no real grasp on, find a voice of mercy in me as I graciously point her back to life by offering to lay some of mine down to walk her back towards life. Will she say, Brian Crawford is my neighbor? That's the question I need to be asking myself. And after two, three years down the road, after the child tastes of hardship and finds himself a little rough around the edges because of that hardship, will that child still be able to say, Brian Crawford is my neighbor? Will that child be able to say, City Light Church is my neighbor? Will that child be able to say, the Christians in Vicksburg, Mississippi, those are my neighbors? State Farm has a mo motto, right? Everybody knows it. Like a good neighbor, what? Like a good neighbor, they are there. Not offhand, not skipping to the other side of the road, not hands off, rather. Present. Will we be present? Will you be present for the broken, for the, for the one on the road? Close, I'll close with by, by just simply saying this. Why, why do we go do it? Why do we do this? Why do we act in this way? Why do we seek ways to do this? Because it's what Jesus did.
Jesus was the ultimate good neighbor. Jesus was the good Samaritan. He was the one that found us beaten and broken by the enemy on the side of the road. And there were many who passed by us, many who quit on us, many who gave up on you, many who said, you don't have a chance. I'm done. And Jesus was the one that walked by, stopped, dressed you, rubbed oil on your wounds, put you on his own animal, and rode you into the end to be restored, to be groomed, to be healed. Jesus did that for you. Jesus did that for me. How can we refuse his call to do the same for others? Amen. Let us go. Let us do this. Let us love our neighbors well because we were first loved by the ultimate neighbor in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful and thankful that you were such a good neighbor to us, that you found us broken on the, on the side of a road, a treacherous road. You found us beaten. You found us torn, battered and bruised. But, Father, you didn't walk away. You came towards us. You moved into us. And you dressed us back up and you, you covered our wounds. And you brought us rest. You brought us peace. And so, Father, if there's anyone in this room who has yet to experience that in you, Lord, I pray that they would come to know that, that precious rest, that precious peace that's been found in you. I pray, Lord God, that instead of seeking to find ways to justify themselves by lowering the bar, that they would find, Lord God, that they simply have to find their justification in you to find the rest that they seek. And Father, I pray for all of us that have been justified in you, that we would not rest, Lord God, simply in our political ballots, that we would not rest simply in, in the occasional coin in a bucket, but that, Father, we would move towards those opportunities of brokenness that you have handed us and assigned us. Some ways we all have them, Lord God. Help us move in. Help us lean in. Help us lean in. These things we ask and we pray in your son Christ's name. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.com dot org.